Amen to all of that. Wonderful to see what God does through the music. It is a big part of why we join together to sing, to worship. And I know you can turn on a song at home or sing a song in the shower, and I recommend both those things. <laughs> Having said that, there's something very sweet and special when God's people get together. That is his plan, by the way. Part of the church getting together is to unify our hearts and unify our voices in worship. I'm thankful for your worship. I'm thankful for the hearts that have been changed and how so many of you are just loving on your God as we sing. Can we stop and bow for prayer one more time as we approach God's word? Father, I would ask you to quiet our hearts. I would ask as the things that run through our mind, the things that are planned for later on in the day, bigger events that are coming up this week, Lord, that you would allow us right now to look into your word, how beautiful and perfect it is to be blessed by it. We thank you that it serves as a mirror for us to see ourselves. And I would pray that we would see ourselves and our journey as we follow you during this time. And I would beg of you to not let me get in the way of your message, but hide me behind the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as we study this now. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I'll ask a question to begin our time today. And the question is this. I wonder how many of you in the past, let's say the past three weeks, or even the past few days, how many of you have had a time where you have talked about, you have reminisced, or you have longed for the good old days? So many of us talk about those good old days. Everybody I talk to in my family has something. Even my kids, as young as they are, they talk about the good old days sometimes. I've had the wonderful privilege of having um, my brother with me. We've had some family in town for several days as he's visiting on business. And um, we've talked about, we've reminisced about some of the good old days. As we've talked about some of those memories, some of them make us laugh and smile. Some were very hard at the time. And sometimes it's just hard for you and I to think we could make it any better today than it was in the good old days. But I think if we're very honest about it, we'll understand that we might be thankful for microwave ovens, right? We might be thankful for some things that we have today. It's kind of like an entitlement. Once you get them, you don't want to let them go. But it seems like before we had some of those things, life was so, so good. I want to ask you this as we jump into Acts 21 today. I want to ask you the question about the good old days. Do you ever, um, I'll use the word covet in a loose way. Do you ever long for or covet those days when God used to speak very plainly and very clearly to people? There was something that needed to be done, a decision to be made, and God spoke to Joshua, and God spoke to Abram. How many times have you thought to yourself, with this before me, I just wish God would tell me what to do? If he would only let me in on some of his incredible, unmeasurable wisdom. Let me mention one area that is one of those areas as we approach the scriptures that we say, yes, I believe it because it's in the Bible. But having said that, not quite sure how that works. 
It's the area of when Jesus Christ, right before he left this world, just before he left and his disciples had been with him, they had been able to touch him, ask him questions, that beautiful picture of John, the one that he loved, leaning on his chest, being close to him. We, uh, Lonnie mentioned in the opening prayer today that they asked him to teach them how to pray. So the disciples had Jesus with them. How beautiful and wonderful would this be? And this is the part that we have a hard time believing, I think. He said, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go. And something better is going to come. I don't know how many of the disciples believed that. Maybe some of them just said, you know, he has said crazy things before that we don't understand. How could it be better than having Jesus Christ in the flesh to touch? But I want to suggest to you that they learned in the early days of the church that what came, the Holy Spirit, was better. And I want to suggest for you today that as the church has continued now, that what we have today is better than the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. And some of you say, let me chew on that for a little bit, all right? And some of you have been through the situation to where very clearly the Holy Spirit has done something so amazing and wonderful inside of you that you would say there's no way in the world it could get any better than this. That was God's plan as the Holy Spirit came. As we look at Acts 21, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 21. I want for us to start with some practical habits that pertain to this. This idea of the Holy Spirit coming, I'm going to give us four practical habits of knowing God's will. As we want to know God's will, I want to suggest that the Holy Spirit is very deeply involved in all of these. Every one of them depends very much on Him. I'm going to start by giving you, and by the way, some take notes. I love that and respect that. Some take crazy detailed notes. I mean, you never hardly look up, right, because you're writing constantly. I found some of your notes before here in the church. Some of you have horrible handwriting, by the way, just so you know. Some folks don't take notes. I understand that. Having said that today, the message is about about knowing God's will. We're going to look at an instance in the Apostle Paul's life where it it seems very much like God's saying two different things, two opposite things. So how is he going to know what to do? I'm going to give you four practices, um, and I'm going to encourage you to write them down. There's a spot on the back of your bulletin. One of the reasons I encourage you to write it down is because of this paper right here. This yellow piece of paper I have had for 16 years this month. It was 16 years ago this month that I had a major decision to make, and I went into one of my godly counselors who I loved and appreciated, and that's his handwriting right there. I'm not a keeper. I don't keep everything. I I love to purge. I almost get a kick out of throwing things away, okay? But I've kept this for 16 years because the counsel he gave me and the wisdom that's in this, and he was obviously a preacher because they all start with S. I'm not going to do that for you today. It's easier to remember if they're alliterated, but I've kept this for quite some time, so I'm asking you, write these things down. Hopefully they will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. I'm going to give all four on the screen for us. And so I will not uh, take offense as you are writing these down. And there's a little bit of a sandwich here when we look at these because we're going to say, and the Holy Spirit comes into these as well, we're going to say, I'm going to put them all up on the screen, I think. We're going to say you need to begin with prayer, and then we're going to say you need to end with prayer. So we're going to say you need to start with prayer, so I need to be praying without ceasing, we talk about. By the way, I don't want to go on a rabbit trail right at the beginning here, but I'm going to. 
People that have that spirit to say, I'm going to be praying without ceasing, that don't have some kind of a serious time of prayer at some point in their life, that beautiful, wonderful blessing of praying without ceasing, that's only going to have as much success as you have spending time with God in that serious time of prayer. So do not say, because I'm praying without ceasing, I can divorce my life from any other kind of serious prayer. We begin with prayer, and then number one, we have the counsel of God's will. Number two, the counsel of your sanctification. The counsel of godly men and women around you. And then the counsel of your conscience. And I didn't make these up. And there's a lot of different folks that have different ideas about this. If you're coming to our 20s and 30s ABF group afterwards, we're going to talk about three additional ones that have been thrown out there. For our purposes this morning, I thought these would be very, very helpful. Let me talk about these just for a moment. The counsel of God's will. There ought to be some kind of a celebration around here at the time, four times a year I think it is, when we get the new daily breads in stock. How many of you use a daily bread at some point in your house? Raise your hand. At some point, you go and raise your hand. Good. All right, put your hand down. There's great devotionals in there. There's also a guide for reading through the scriptures. It's a wonderful resource. There ought to be some kind of a celebration when we're thinking about how we're going to be taking in more of the counsel of God's word. Here's how important it should be to you. You need to get to the point where when you have something, you have so much to do in a day, and I know your guys' schedules, If you were to show me your calendar, some of you might have 20 things to get done this coming week. Here's what your spirit and attitude should be about those days and the counsel of God's will. You should say this, I have so much to get done today and I want to get it all done and do it well that I could not possibly not take time to read God's word. That's how it ought to be. Not I don't have time to read my Bible because I'm so busy. If you want to do well and make good decisions, I'm so busy I could not afford not to spend time in God's word. Let that drive you. Then the counsel of your sanctification. These are lessons that we learn while becoming like Christ. Lessons that you learn in your your, um, journey of being like the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be looking at this. And then the counsel of godly men and women. I had the experience of being close by someone years ago that was making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And and I thought of this. And as I talked with him, I asked this question, who are you getting counsel from? Bad decision. After bad decision, who are you getting counsel from? And they just kind of nodded their head and said, really not anybody. You need to surround yourself with godly counsel, individuals who know the word and that love God and that love you. Individuals that won't just tell you what you want to hear. Can I suggest that if you go to enough people, somebody's going to tell you what you want to hear? That's not what we always need to hear. You need someone who's going to tell you if I can, you know, to be plain here, someone's going to tell you you got something in your teeth. People who really like you and love you will tell you when you got something in your teeth. They're going to tell you that. People who like you and love you will tell you when your hair is messed up. People who like you and love you will say, you know what, you need to slow down on this decision you're about to make because I'm having some red flags go up. So you need to surround yourself with the counsel of godly men and women. And when we put these three together, it leads us to the counsel of your conscience the counsel of your conscience and how beautiful these can be. When we think of our conscience and trusting what's been going on, 
Let me just say this. With all of these, none of them can be taken solely by itself and say, I'm just going to concentrate on this one and I'm good to go. You have to use all of these and also understand that every one of these can be, um, it, it can be distorted. It can be taken the wrong way. How many of you have been a counselor that's given bad advice to someone? Don't raise your hands, all right? I've done that, though. I've given bad counsel to somebody. They didn't do what I said. They got down the road, and I'm thinking, praise the Lord, but they didn't take my advice. They didn't take my counsel. How many of you have received bad counsel? Don't write that person off. When we think of your conscience and trusting our time in God's Word, by the way, that time in God's Word can be tricky as well. Because we can take a Bible verse, and we can use that, and maybe it doesn't mean exactly what somebody tells you it means. Somebody takes that Bible verse, be ye in the world, but not of the world. Did God say that? Yes, he did. What does he mean by that? Well, we need to go through that. And if someone says something, understand they might be wrong about how they interpret that. It might differ than you. They might be right, though. So be very, very careful. And as these work together, I talk about trusting your heart. This is a great book. If you're working on your Christ-likeness, your sanctification, the book Changed into His Image by Jim Berg. This is one of the most worn books that I have in my library. It talks about how we can be more Christ-like. There's a whole chapter in here that talks about how your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But don't allow yourself to say, I can't trust anything that I think. If I want to do it, I've got to do the opposite because my heart's deceitful. No, don't allow yourself to do that. Just understand that we have to use all these things together. I believe very firmly that God gives his children the desires of their hearts. I also believe that God can change those desires. So these four bits of advice for seeking God's will and knowing what to do, all right, what did the Apostle Paul face? He made all kinds of decisions. And by the way, there was sometimes where he was coming up, he was determined to go somewhere, and God said, no, stop. We don't find it quite so clear here. In fact, we find individuals with completely different ideas that seem like they're all from God. All that to bring us to our text here in Acts chapter 21. I'm going to back up just a little bit and to um, give us the... Um, to give us the good background, I want to look in chapter number 20, verse number 22. This is going to set the stage for the desire that's in Paul's heart. So verse number 22 of Acts 20 says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. You need to remember that because he's going to hear that same kind of message again from some other people. And then we look, go ahead and we look at the reason why Paul wanted to go. Let me give you two reasons as we've been studying the book of Acts why Paul wanted to go. First of all, Paul was taking with him an offering. It was a love gift from all the different churches to the needy believers that were in Jerusalem. These were Jews, Gentiles, mixed people, all kinds of people. And they were all giving this gift. And the Apostle Paul knew how important this would be. One battle that Paul constantly came up against with the church, and you should, you should remember this lesson that we've seen again and again in the book of Acts, is that the devil constantly attacks the church from the outside. Has anybody here noticed that we have an enemy that would love to close our doors? He would love to shut us down. 
They would just love to say, in the day we live in, in the place we live in, they would love to just say, you know what, you can be a Christian in your house of worship, but don't you dare take it outside these walls into the marketplace. The devil loves to attack from the outside. He also loves to attack the church from somewhere else. Do you remember where it is? The level, devil loves to attack from within. Oh, we don't like talking about that because it might be somebody, it might be somebody sitting next to you. I'm not pointing at anybody. I'll just keep my hands down like this. I'm not pointing at anybody, all right? The devil loves to attack from within, and the Apostle Paul knew this, and again and again, the devil would attack the church by trying to make these racial lines something that they would separate over. And so taking this offering to Jerusalem and getting there, it was a huge step of helping the church unite within helping bridge this gap between the Jewish believers that constantly, it seems like, kept insisting that the Gentiles had to live under the law. And even next week, we're going to look a little bit more about that and what the Apostle Paul did to help bridge that gap. Another reason why he wanted to go was because he wanted to preach in Jerusalem when there were a lot of people there. As we've talked about this, we've seen that he wanted to be there by the Passover, and he did not make it. And so now the Apostle Paul's goal is to get there by Pentecost when so many would be joining together. These are reasons why he wanted to go. And the last time we looked at this in our study, we found the Apostle Paul and the elders from Ephesus had come down and he gave them that last bit of instruction. And can you remember the spirit, the attitude of their meeting together? Can you remember what they were doing? They were weeping hugging on him, most of all because he said they would not see him again. You see, when the Apostle Paul went on these three missionary journeys, and this is right at the tail end of the last one, when Paul went on his missionary journeys, it was his practice not only to start new churches, but it was his practice to visit the churches that he had already started, even years previously. And now he says, you're not going to see my face again. So they were weeping. Look at verse number, or chapter number 20. We'll start at verse 36 and go down through verse 3 of 21, starting in verse 36 of Acts 20. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of, of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship and when he had parted from them, we set sail and came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come into sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. All right, let's stop right there. As we see what he's doing here, it's clear. He gets, on a, he gets on a smaller boat, and it's kind of going day by day and making stops. Paul wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. This is not um, very time effective for him. So they switch over to a large boat. They're going to go about 400 miles on this larger boat. But the boat needs to stop and unload and reload new cargo. There's about seven days where he's going to be in this place. And so Paul does what Paul does. He goes and seeks out believers. As we read it, it looks like it's a little bit hard for him to find the Christians, but he does eventually find them. Look in verse number four. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Don't miss this. 
And through the Spirit, capital S in my Bible, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. All right. So here we have something that Paul's determined to do. It seems the Holy Spirit had put this in Paul's heart. And now we have other people saying, do not go to Jerusalem. Some of you have found yourself in a place where you have two decisions to make and neither one is wrong or right. What do you do? Who do you listen to? As we see here, the Apostle Paul and the resolve that is in him, some might say, and honestly, as you study through this, you look at different people's ideas, some people would title this section Paul's bravery. Some would title it Paul's mistake. And I've seen good men that land on both sides of this. Who was right? Who was wrong? What is God's will? Is Paul being disobedient? Were they not thinking clearly? And let me go ahead and give us one little side application here, one little side point, and that is this. Oftentimes, our greatest strengths are going to be directly tied to our greatest weaknesses. So think of yourself as you follow Jesus Christ. You're going to have some strengths. You do. Maybe you have some that everybody knows about. It's very clear that that is your strength. It is very common that that strength that you have that's going to help drive you in your Christian walk, that that can also be something that leads to your weaknesses. It just very clearly comes across as a weakness. I mentioned to you earlier that I've had some time to talk about some, the good old days, if you will, with my brother being in town. And we oftentimes talk about my dad. We see a lot of our father in each one of us, for better or for worse. We see a lot of our father in each one of us. And my dad, very much so, when he was um, raising us, he had a favorite car. Some of you are car guys. I like that. My dad had a favorite car. His favorite car that he loved, and he bought it more than one of, was he had a Trans Am. Anybody here love the Trans Am? Anybody else? All right, I see two hands. All right. He loved the Trans Am. He bought a Trans Am. In fact, my brother, who's just 13 months older than me, he got his driver's license, and he got to drive the Trans Am. And since he was only a year older, I didn't get my driver's license. I got to sit in the passenger seat of the Trans Am. He loved the Trans Am. I'm not bitter at all. Don't, don't pray for me that way. He loved the Trans Am. That was something that was very strong about him. He loved this Trans Am, and so since he loved it, can you, can you think of, can some of you guess what kind of car he disliked? There was a kind of, he loved the Trans Am, and so he disliked, he really did not like the Camaro. And I'm sorry for all you, let's look at some of you groaning out there. I'm sorry for those of you who are Camaro lovers. He loved the Trans Am because of that. He hated it. We'd be behind a Camaro. He'd say, look at those yellow lights on the back of that. That is nasty. They need a, they need a honeycomb light like the Trans Am has. They need the headlights to pop up like the Trans Am lights do. Well, much to my dad's dismay, the Camaro made a big run a few years back. You'll still see him around, the, around town and even in our parking lot. The Camaro made a big run, and I was talking to my dad not too long ago, and I decided to just do a little, little bit of prying here with him. And I said, Dad, have you seen that new Camaro? Just like that. And I'm thinking, he's going to have to concede, because it's a cool-looking car. He's going to, he's going to have to. Let me tell you how strongly my dad felt. The first thing he said to me is this, and I'm going to try not to 
sound too much like him, but he said, oh man, I'll tell you what, I was talking to a mechanic the other day, he told me how many of those Camaros he's had in his shop, those Camaros are junk. No more Trans Ams to defend, and still he hates the Camaro. Here's the point. Oftentimes, what you're good at can even lead to maybe something that you might be bad at. Here's what I mean by that. If you are very, very good at discernment, some of you have a gift of discernment, you can look at a situation, you can look at something that's going on or a person, and you can have a good handle and see things that maybe others can't see. That's a beautiful strength. But that strength can also lead to you being judgmental. It can. Guard against that. Maybe some of you have the gift of mercy. You're a very merciful person. You see somebody and something happens and your heart goes out to them. And even you're close with someone and you want to show mercy right away to them. And that's a beautiful thing and I hope this place is filled with folks who have the gift of mercy and you show that oftentimes in your life. But don't miss this. If you're strong in mercy, it very well might be that you might be soft on sin. What your strength might be might also be very closely tied to what your weaknesses might be. And I'll say all that to say this. It is very possible. I don't know for sure either way. I'm not siding with anybody who was right, Paul or all these other believers that the Holy Spirit spoke to him. Who was right, who was wrong. The Apostle Paul, if he had something that he was so strong about, it was getting the gospel out. It was preaching the gospel. It was doing away with this incredible, horrible divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so very possibly when everybody said, do not go, he would just push through. I'm already moving. We're not having this conversation. It's very possible that his weaknesses would drive him to go there. I can't say for sure. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and then they returned home. Now let me give you, this is a tough one. I'm going to give you a tough one for those of you who have been part of our study. When we're reading through the book of Acts, and we find um, the author writing the word they, and then writing the word we. When we find that word we went on board the ship, who does that mean is with them? Who's with them when he writes we? It means that Luke is with them, the writer of the book. I want to say this. It's very possible that when they had this prayer down on the beach, everybody went down to the beach, they're all seeing him off. Have you ever heard somebody pray, and they're not really praying to God? but they're kind of praying so you could hear what they're praying. Have you been part of that? I've been part of that. I've been in a prayer time when someone's praying and they're saying things and I'm thinking, I think they're talking to me. I'm pretty, you know, and, and that might have been going on. I can't say for sure, but very much so. This prayer time might have been, oh God, please help Paul to see the error of his ways. Help Paul not to go down to Jerusalem. Help him see that the Holy Spirit and what he's told us is right. He could, they could have been talking through their prayers is God genuinely the audience? I'm not sure about that. But we need to be careful to make sure that God is always our audience when we are praying. As we look at verses 7 through 10, we're going to wrap this up. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. 
He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he, look at this picture, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, let me just stop here and remind us of something because we come across this passage where we have Philip and he's got these four unmarried daughters who are prophesying and we have Agabus who is a prophet. I knew a couple years ago when we jumped into the book of Acts there were going to be some sensitive topics that we're going to talk about. I'm fairly confident that everybody listening today is not going to be in the same place of this. Let me talk about this just for a moment. And as I oftentimes say, if I succeed in driving you to the scriptures to study out what you think for yourself, that's a a wonderful success when we join together. In the founding of the New Testament church, there were two positions that were key. When the church started, two foundational positions. Here's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 says. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. As God started his church, it was on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Paul... Later on, when he starts a church and when he turns over the authority of the church to someone, he always turned it over to the pastors and the elders. There was never a mention of the prophets and the apostles. Now, the word prophet can be used as a teacher in a different word if we take that. But this idea of one that prophesies and the apostles, ones that had seen and been with Jesus Christ, that's different. Involved in the work of the apostles and the prophets was revelation from God. Today we have a completed word of God. We have all that God wants us to have written down for us. But in this day, God would give revelation to the apostles and to the prophets. They did not have the completed Bible yet. We can even divide that down. Hopefully I'm not losing you here. This is important for you. The apostles, when they would get revelation, it was mostly doctrinal revelation. Revelation that we're given today and we use it today. The prophets were given revelation that was very practical. That's what we find here in verse 11. Something very practical. Previously in chapter 11, verse 28 of Acts, we saw Agabus, same guy, giving a word of prophecy when he said there was going to be a great famine over all the world. God gave him that word. And so there's a difference that was foundational. You study that out. And don't get too hung up on it either, okay? Don't get too crazy about it. But know what you believe and know what God's word says. By the way, I know we're out of time, but let me just go on one more rabbit trail here. And this might be an application right for you, okay? Because at this time, we find the Apostle Paul, and he meets up with somebody that we studied earlier in the book of Acts. He meets up with Philip. Philip was an evangelist. Philip was one of the seven so in Acts chapter 6, we studied how God very clearly said, you, you leaders, you deacons, you, I mean, you elders and pastors need help. So he gave deacons to help with the logistics, with the things that needed to go on. They needed to care for the widows in the church. Deacons were established. Philip, this guy right here, is one of those. Philip is probably the second best known deacon. Can you, all right class, can you remember who's probably the best known deacon that was in there all right somebody said it Stephen 
I want to suggest to you that there has been 20 years that has gone on, and when the Apostle Paul started to persecute the church, he had a relationship with Stephen, didn't he? Those who killed Stephen laid their coats at the feet of one named Saul. And that caused Philip the Evangelist to go and to preach. And a revival was started. And I think this is the first time they had seen each other. One of the seven deacons. Saul is responsible for killing that guy. He's persecuting the church. 20 years goes by now. And now they have a face-to-face. Can I suggest to you that we do not see within Philip anything that is holding on to that bitterness, that is wanting that revenge? We do not see anything that is saying, so he's hearing these prophecies, oh yeah, you're going to suffer big time when you go to Jerusalem. We don't see Philip going, I think you should go then. That's not what we find in Philip. They love each other. Listen, they were committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and there was nothing that was going to drive a wedge between them and now they have this time together after 20 years. And the prophecy that Agabus gives is very, very vivid. So let me ask you, up to this point, and we're, we're almost done, up to this point, who is telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Well, the Christians entire. And when we looked at that, it said they kept on saying to him, do not go. Agabus here gives this prophecy. And now in verse number 12, we find some, some other people join in. Look at verse number 12. It says, when we heard this, this prophecy Agabus just gave, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Everybody is telling the Apostle Paul, do not go there. Let's go ahead and finish. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, don't miss verse 14. This might give us some great clues and answers here. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so here we find the very end of Paul's third missionary journey, but he's not done in ministry. He's not even close to being done with what God had for him to do. All right, let me give you some things you can do. These are uh, very closely tied to the beginning of the message as we looked at what we can do. All right, I don't have any control here, Randy. I'm going to let you advance those. And as we look at um, what you can do here, let me go ahead and say this. Number one, you need to count on the, uh, the counsel of God's will. The counsel of God's will. Very practically, and I mentioned the daily bread earlier, that's a wonderful tool for us, but let me encourage you, as you want to have wisdom and making choices in your life, don't just, listen, listen, don't just give a kiss to the, to the word of God as you go out the door. Swim in the deep, rich truths of God's word. Be daily swimming in that. And when you need to make decisions, they will come through. Next, the counsel of your sanctification. I want to encourage you to be Christ-like. Dedicate your life to be Christ-like. This is your sanctification. This means you're going to learn by your successes 
and all God's people said amen to, you can also learn by your failures. Learn from them as part of your sanctification. Be Christ-like. And then also the counsel of godly men and women. Surround yourself with godly men and women. Parents and grandparents, listen. Surround your kids and your grandkids with godly men and women. Be intentional about it. Let them see people who love Jesus Christ, that reflect Him, and that are pouring into their lives. I don't know any Sunday school or kids program at any of these churches in town that charges your kid to come. You need to be part of this. Have your kid a part of this. Surround yourself with godly counsel and wisdom. And then finally, move forward with confidence. Confidence in the plan. This is what God wants for you. Trust Him. Trust these different things as the Holy Spirit is working in your life and as you pray and as you have a tough decision to make. And by the way, one more. You will never be able to know. This isn't for everybody. It's only for some. You will never be able to know God's will if you are not saved. If you've not come to the point where you've dedicated yourself to following Jesus Christ, asked him for forgiveness, you cannot know God's will. You can get some wisdom out of the scriptures. You can get some wisdom from godly people around you. You can make a good decision every once in a while, but you cannot genuinely have the confidence to move forward if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And 1 Timothy 2.4 says that it's God's will for you to be saved if you're not following him today. Let me close with this quick story because I faced this in the past couple weeks. I had a decision to make. It wasn't clear for me. I wasn't sure what to do. And every one of these things came into play. I'm thankful for the many people at Calvary here, as well as other churches, but that play a role in the National Day of Prayer. And I'm thankful for those of you that prayed for that. I'm thankful for leaders in our church. I got a text from one of our leaders before 6 a.m. I was up, it's okay. I got a text before 6 a.m. and he said, my wife and I were talking about this. They were praying about it. They wanted this to be a success, this National Day of Prayer event that we really do a lot of the work for here. And the forecast was for, you guys remember what it was for? It was for rain all morning, all afternoon, all day. And it's an outside event. And as we're going to this, I was scrambling, wondering what to do. I knew it was supposed to rain. I had so much to do that day, I could not possibly not spend time. Wait, double negative there, sorry. I had so much to do there that I had to spend time in God's word to get the things done, to make the right decisions. I also surrounded myself with counsel. I called at least two people that I respect their opinion. They had nothing to do with it. They know a little bit about it. I got their advice and I got their counsel. And as we went and as we made decisions, we made the call to move it inside into the old courthouse there. It only holds 120 people. Rain forecast. We were wondering if anybody was going to come we went through the whole thing, and I'm wondering who didn't get to go. I know some people came and filled in the bottom part there and didn't get to see it, but we heard them singing upstairs. Some of you were in that group. And so I'm wondering, was it a disaster? Two times out of four, it's rained on us. Is God making a mistake there? What's God doing? How effective was it? We had called the papers. We wanted them to come and take pictures. Was it a disaster? Did, God, did God's weather get in the way of God's plans? And I got an email from someone that said this. It said, Jeremy, I thought last night's National Day of Prayer event was the best one that I can recall. Thank you for all your efforts in putting it together. 
here's what we do. We trust the process. But it's not simple. Jump into God's word daily. Know his word. Surround yourself with good people. Know the sanctification, what he's teaching you. Pay attention. And with all of that, step out with confidence, knowing that God is in control of these things. And he will not let you go through any door that he does not have something wonderful planned for you and for your life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, very clearly, we look to you with questions and more questions. And some things are very, very hard decisions and there's going to be consequences and people might be hurt or people might be helped. Would you allow us as a church family to look at the principles of your word and apply them? I thank you that we are not alone and I praise you for the Holy Spirit. And I would say amen and amen to Jesus Christ when you left this world and you said something better is going to come. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is within all those who follow you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna ask Ron just to play through just a short spot on the piano. I wanna give you a chance to pray. Maybe you've dropped the ball in some of these areas. Maybe your pride won't allow you to ask anybody for counsel and advice to where it would actually change what you do. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God's word like it should be. Or even today, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not following Christ. Take care of whatever God's laid on your heart during this time.